the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this post-Thanksgiving edition of The Dan Proft Show. Hope everyone had a lovely holiday. Uh, we uh, begin this installment by updating the election challenges that uh, President Trump and his campaign are lodging in the several states. The status of uh, recounts as well, with the recount in the two most populous counties, big Democrat counties in Wisconsin, being completed in uh, Dane and Milwaukee County, bumping Joe Biden's lead by a few less than 200 votes in Wisconsin. But again, as in Georgia, the recount is not the end-all, be-all. So the idea that the hand count matched the machine count, that's one issue. The larger issue is watching the hand count, identifying irregularities, things like signatures not matching with respect to mail-in ballots, those sorts of things, is what the poll watchers and those doing the monitoring the recount do to identify, gather evidence for the purposes of seeking affidavits, for the purposes of filing a follow-up complaint in relevant courts and relevant jurisdictions to make the claim that there is evidence that we have a problem. It rises to the level that a remedy that's sought, if the argument taken in a vein most favorable to the moving party were accepted, could change the outcome of the election in a particular state. And when you're talking about 12,000 votes in Georgia and 20,000 in Wisconsin, these are still possibilities, perhaps remote, but still possibilities. And this is the process. So it just gets misreported. The hand recount matched the machine recount. So that's the end of it. No, that's not the end of it. The hand recount is for the purpose of trying to identify indicia of other irregularities. For example, uh, there was a report, Gateway Pundit posted it, that there were a couple of thousand fraudulent mail-in ballots found in Dane County where the, all of the ballots had the same signature. So this goes to one theory that uh, when counts were stopped in particular urban centers in particular states on in the wee hours of the Wednesday morning following Election Day, that you had a bunch of cooked-up ballots processed through the machines – and so the machine count and the hand count will be the same, but it's important to be able to actually inspect the paper ballots, which even Christopher Krebs, the former cybersecurity official that was fired by Trump after the election, agreed paper ballots are the backstop to ensure the integrity of the election. Well, that's essentially what these hand counts are for. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other are the claims that are being made in filings like those winding their way through the federal courts in Pennsylvania. Over the weekend, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals dismissing the Trump campaign's appeal of a lower court decision, throwing out a case alleging essentially voter fraud in Pennsylvania without much evidence. And the Trump campaign response, this is just noteworthy because the particulars matter here. Trump campaign response is, well, now we can shoot right to the Supreme Court. Well, the actual issue that was raised on appeal 
was not an equal protection issue. It was not uh, about cured ballots. It was not about accepting mail-in ballots after 8 p.m. on Election Day. It was about whether or not the Trump campaign should have been given leave to refile an amended complaint for a second time by the federal district court judge, which was rejected by the appellate court judges. If you were to appeal to the Supreme Court on that basis, that would be the only issue you could argue. And so is that really material to changing the outcome of a election? No. I have to say the focus of the Trump legal team leaves a little bit much, to, uh, le- well, leaves much to be desired. Not a little bit, leaves much to be desired. And so Rudy Giuliani was on with uh, Greg Kelly on Newsmax over the weekend And he essentially argued per the hearing in Pennsylvania that was initiated by Republican state senators there that uh, the campaign is on two tracks, state legislative hearings like the one in Pennsylvania on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, the one coming this week in Michigan, and uh, also those filings, those complaints that have been filed in courts that are winding their way through state and federal courts, depending on the particular state. Here's Giuliani. The Constitution of the United States puts the selection of the president in the hands of the state legislature, not the governor, not the attorney general, but the state legislature. They set the rules and they decide if the vote is correct. So we're going to each one of these state legislators and we're saying, if you certify that vote, you're certifying a false statement. You're committing fraud because that vote is not the right vote. Biden did not win the number of votes that he has attributed to him. Some of those votes he won by taking a ballot and putting in a machine and counting it five times. So he would get five votes for every one that Trump got. And we've got witnesses to that. They followed the same fraudulent patterns in the big cities where they control like dictators. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Professor Richard Epstein, Peter and Kirsten Bedford, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch, Professor of Law at NYU Law School, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Professor Epstein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm very glad to be here. What do you think about uh, the argument that uh, Rudy Giuliani is making sort of in the alternative, if the courts don't believe us, then the state legislature should? Oh, my God. This is a can of worms, the likes of which we've never seen before. But let me sort of start with the basic framework. The uh, Bush v. Gore decision that took place in 2000 had a kind of a very goofy equal protection claim, which commanded a majority of the court and a much stronger claim, which said that the legislation that was then in place uh, meant that the secretary of state was in charge of doing the count and that when she made the count, the courts could not usurp that function. I had written at that time that that was indeed the correct interpretation and the statute should apply. Now, when you come to this modern situation, you have a different issue that's added into the mix that has to be taken into account. What happens is the rules that were set in the uh, Bush v. Gore and the minority of the opinion of the voting took a pre-existing set of statutory rules and started to apply them, and it didn't try to make the legislature do anything new or different. What's going on in this particular case is a campaign to say that what happens is that you should literally replace the electors that were chosen by the majority of the people with somebody else. There are two ways to look at this, and I think one of them is correct and the other I think is not. The incorrect method is to say, look, it doesn't matter what the state of the evidence is. If you think that we're right, you can just simply take away the Democratic electors, put the Republican electors in their place, and shift the state. And I think that that would be a major crisis. The argument that's being made is a more narrow argument, is that we can prove to you that they were fraudulent ballots. Uh, this is not a question of sort of idiosyncratic 
systematic occasional frauds. This is a case of systematic fraud. That's got to be the allocation. And we can prove that. Then if the state legislature says we believe that is to be the case and replaces it, I think that it could surely be subject to a judicial challenge, which says, oh, no, 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 this was just pure politics. It wasn't there. And then you would have to get a hearing. Uh, the reason why this is so utterly difficult is that uh, there are two kinds of rehearings that you could get. One is a recount of the ballots that were cast. And if it turns out you're saying that there are ballots that shouldn't have been cast, ballots that were excluded that should have been cast, a recount will not pick up those situations. Right. So what you need to do is to have a much more plenary kind of hearing in which they can say, well, here are the ballots that we think should have been included that were excluded. Here are the multiple ballots that were included that we think should have been excluded. And now we have to present all proofs. At that particular point in time, the other side is clearly going to be given the right to say, oh, no, no, you're wrong on every one of these things. And then they're going to say, and by the way, the counts aren't sufficient. So let me just tag another issue of nightmarish proportions that's going to come up. Suppose it turns out that you say the majority in Pennsylvania is, say, let's say 20,000 votes. I don't know what the number is. And what you can do is you can find and identify conclusively 15,000. It doesn't change the vote. And then the issue is, well, we found 15,000, but where there's smoke, there's fire. And we think it's highly likely that there were another 10,000 votes that were treated the same way, and we were just unable to get them. And then the other side's going to come back and say, to make this momentous a shift, you have to identify the votes. And if you look at the common law of fraud, it goes both ways on a question like this. Uh, so what happens is this challenge is fraught with risk. And yet, on the other hand, it's backed to some extent by some form of principle. Uh, what would not be defensible would be just a legislative decision to scrap the Electoral College uh, scheme that was put into place before and to say, oh, we just want to have these other voters. At that point, the whole system collapses. So sooner or later, this thing is going to have to be resolved in a hearing. And it's not going to be resolved in a hearing which just is dealing with kind of fancy points of law. It's going to be involved in a hearing in which you're going to have to go through all of the stuff here figure out the way the voting machines were working. Ask yourself why it is that everything seemed to get shut down in the early hours of the morning. Who had access to the system and so called? Uh, this is a, a very long and complicated kind of trial. Um, if it's just Pennsylvania, it would not influence it, but as best that I can understand about this, uh, the Republican claims uh, cover Atlanta, Philadelphia, uh, Milwaukee, um, uh, that's Detroit. Three, and I think there's one. Yeah, and, and, and Milwaukee, there's one other state that's involved. Though, yeah, Detroit, Michigan. What? Yeah. Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. You've got four states there, and that's enough to switch the election. So, I mean, this is the consequence that you get out of a system, which essentially is much too open-ended. Just a kind of a, a general observation about the way in which people tended to treat fraud. Let, let's hold it right there. I want to get your general observation when we come back. I also want to get your assessment of um, what I see as a bit of a lack of specificity from the Trump campaign with respect to some of the litigation they've uh, initiated in those states you just mentioned. More with Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch, Professor of Law at NYU Law School, Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. We'll be right back. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor Richard Epstein. He's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU Law School, and a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And if we have time, we'll get to some controversy, recent controversy at the University of Chicago with respect to academic freedom. But uh, I want to uh, pick up where we left off before the break, uh, Professor, and that was a general observation you wanted to make about the uh, claims that are being leveled by the Trump campaign. Hi, I'm here. Yep, I, I, I would pick up where we left off uh, before the break with uh, a general observation you wanted to make about the uh, claims being leveled by the Trump campaign. Okay, yes. Um, well, one of the most important things to understand is the attitude that one starts to take with respect to the question of fraud. Um, the traditional view with respect to elections is that electoral fraud was a very, very difficult kind of issue and that remedies put into place after the fact in order to stop it were likely to be startling ineffective because it would be extremely difficult to track it down. So uh, the early systems on this put into place lots of antecedent protections about when you can vote, the papers that you had to sign, the identification that you had to uh, present, and so forth. And the theory was that the tight system was going to exclude some people who might otherwise uh, been able to vote, but it was going to be able to prevent the fraud, and the fraud was the greater threat to the legitimacy of the election. It's a theory which, in general, I happen to share, uh, because I believe that fraud is endemic to all institutions, and that it is not a respecter of political party, race, affiliations, or anything. And so trying to get these things into place are there. You then get a combination of two factors coming there. One is the general preference to say that we uh, don't have to worry about it this much. We've got better ways to do it so we can relax deadlines and have a larger number of mail ballots. Uh, the reason why that's an extremely controversial decision, in my judgment, is that the chain of control and the chain of custody that you have over mail ballots is much weaker than those that you have uh, if you get people inside the poll. So to, just to give you one kind of problem, you mail out the ballots, and generally speaking, you know as a virtual certainty that 10% of the people to whom the ballots are going to be sent are not going to be living at their then-current address because they've moved maybe inside the state, maybe outside the state, and so forth. Those ballots can then be harvested by somebody else and held in reserve uh, to be filled in if the occasion starts to call for it. And how are you going to be able to track that down is extremely difficult. So uh, you open it up. So what's happened in this one is we opened it up thinking we could handle this problem better than I think we can. And then you get the COVID thing on top of that, which leads people to say, now we have to really worry about these mail ballots because it's a necessary thing to do it. After which you get the Pennsylvania decision, which says that what you can do is get rid of the strict deadlines that the statutes impose. I do not believe that the legislature uh, should be overturned in that particular matter. Right. I think many people tried to make adjustments in terms of the way in which the system would go without getting rid of the bed deadlines because time is of the essence after an election. And yet the Pennsylvania court did it. The United States Supreme Court split. Uh, so what the Trump people are going to say is you have now created this system in which things are wide open. And so the probability, background probability of fraud is much greater. So the way in which these cases start to get proved is first you indicate motivation. 
that's not very hard to do. The Biden people would like to win. You then note, look, it doesn't take everybody to participate into a fraud. If you get a very small number of people who are critically located, they could pull it off, even if the rest of the campaign and the rest of the public is completely ignorant of what's going on. Then you point to the machines, a claim, I don't know whether it's true, uh, that they are vulnerable to being manipulated in one way, shape, or form or another. So what you do is you set the background to indicate the possibility and opportunity with respect to some kind of fraud. And then having given that background, what you try to do is to present the cases of proving multiple ballots, ballots on wrong paper, ballots that only refer to the president but don't complete anything else. Um, and if, suppose you were to come up with, it's been alleged, I have, as I say, I'm not a professor of facts. I don't know whether anything's the truth. But suppose the allegation is that there were, in particular counties, uh, more ballots cast by mail than mail ballots were sent out. At that particular point, you know that there's an excess, and then you have to figure out who's responsible for the excess. Are there other claims? Again, uh, somebody says, well, here's a community which is 96% in favor of Biden, and we have 100 votes, all which are Biden. And somebody will say to you, well, what's the probability of that happening? And you might think, well, it'd be pretty high. It's only four votes that have to shit. But if you do the mathematics, it's like one in a quadrillion number of cases because the correct answer is 0.96 to the hundredth power, and that number is vanishingly small. And so you're going to have to worry about how you understand the statistics is against the ordinary intuition, have to put this before juries, have to do it under enormous time pressures. And so the reason why I think the traditional views on being very tight about mail and ballots and deadlines is appropriate is A, it gives you more time to resolve problems if they occur, and B, it makes it far less likely that the problems will occur in the first place. And if they do occur, it will reduce the dimensions and the scope of it uh, so that you could have a greater confidence that whatever fraud was undertaken in a particular location um, essentially was not enough to switch the outcome of an election. Well, but uh, the reason why this is now subject to sort of genuine challenge is the claim is that the Dominion system is incapable of being administrated uh, and manipulated at the compiler level uh, so that what you can do is you can have a centralized way in which to achieve these kinds of results, uh, which would be very difficult to track. Um, it's absolutely beyond my competence to determine which way these cases are to go. Uh, there was a previous commentator who said he thought that the Trump campaign had done a terrible job in presenting the way in which it had done. I agree with that. My view is if you're going to do this, you don't have a broadside which talks about frivolous, non-frivolous things, indignation, outright confusion. What you do is you constantly hone in on the one thing that you have to prove in order to win and make it into a technical discussion rather than into a political discussion. Yeah. And uh, I... some people have lost consistently in court. And as far as I can tell, the kind of cases that is strongest for them to present don't seem to have been fairly brought into the court yet. And this is three weeks, four weeks after the election. They surely should have done a better job if they're right. That, that seems that, that, that's certainly my assessment. And, and it's, it, it seems like there's um, obvious places to start. You mentioned Pennsylvania, but the issue of the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, by judicial fiat extending the deadline for the acceptance mm -hmm. of mail-in ballots, the, the issue of some counties uh, choosing to cure ballots and other counties not. Those are specific cohorts of ballots that could be mm -hmm. examined and that actually uh, potentially rise to the level of, of impacting the outcome of Pennsylvania. Sort of the same thing in Wisconsin. You have 238,000 votes where people were uh, designated as um, indefinitely confined 
And that was a definition that was expanded in COVID, and all of those individuals who voted under the indefinitely confined designation don't have to meet the voter ID requirement for the state. So there's another cohort of ballots. seems to me like specific batches of ballots with specific theories that give rise to equal protection claims would be the place to start. It would be, and it would also require that you get your technical experts to figure out the other set of claims that work through the compiler and centralized control. And, and this is not the kind of thing that should be done by Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell. This is not the kind of work that they do. He is uh, Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU Law School, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Professor Epstein, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your, your time. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Moderna moving to seek emergency use authorization from the FDA for their vaccine. Pfizer and BioNTech expected to get regulatory approval across the pond in the UK such that NHS hospitals are on notice to be prepared to receive and begin distributing dosages of, the, of their vaccine by Wednesday uh, of this week. Speaking of which, and then where is Pfizer, BioNTech with the FDA? What, what's the hold up here? That's one of many questions. The other is one of uh, whether or not uh, the, uh, uh, you know, prologue to death holiday dirges from certain TV epidemiologists will continue to be the norm into Christmas. And if Tony Fauci is any indication, they will be. We said that these things would happen as we got into the cold weather and as we began traveling and they've happened. It's going to happen again. So I cannot see all of a sudden a relaxation of the kinds of recommendations or restrictions because we're getting into colder weather and in in an even larger holiday season as people travel to come back and forth for Christmas. So I don't see a relaxation of the kind of recommendations and restrictions that we've made. Yeah, well, you're seeing an increasing resistance uh, there, Dr. Fauci, and when you lose the French... Thousands of Parisians out in force over the weekend uh, chanting liberté because at least some recognize you can have no égalité or fraternité without liberté. And uh, also protests in London, in New York City, Staten Island Pub has declared itself an autonomous zone. Max Public House in Grand City uh, has declared themselves an autonomous zone. They, the liquor license has been suspended. They don't care. Uh, they're just taking donations. So you don't actually have to pay for the liquor. Uh-huh. This is like the episode of Cheers where Rebecca forgot to renew the liquor license, and so they just gave away drinks. So they weren't in violation of the law. It's getting a a little silly, but uh, underlying some of the silliness is real seriousness, which is people's lives and livelihoods are on the line. You know, hallmark for the uh, misanthrope uh, sort of messaging. I I get it. But um, some people have had enough of taking it. 
And, um, you know, this is going to continue to get increasingly tense, even ironically, as I said at the outset, with the distribution of one or more of the vaccines in the near in, in, in the in the offing. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS as well. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Dan. Hello. So let's start with vaccines. So uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, they're going to be good to go this week in the U.K., it uh, is reported. Moderna seeking emergency use authorization here. Where is the FDA in processing uh, Moderna, Pfizer, uh, AstraZeneca, and getting those uh, vaccines on the street in America? It's right there. You know, I think they'll move um, relatively quickly. You know, under the current administration, I think I think they'll continue to um, to encourage them to uh, to, for example, work through the weekend. Uh, and, and you know, I expect. Uh, I expect we're going to have uh, these vaccines within the, in the next few weeks here. You know, I do. I mean, they, you know, they do have to have to go through data and they I mean, they, I'm not a, you know, we make light of it. But I mean, they, they actually we, we do want to make sure that um, that we fully understand these vaccines. They appear to be effective, at least in 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 uh, in some measure and maybe extraordinarily effective. But we we, we want to make sure that. Uh, that that they don't do harm as well. So I think you know I I you know I expect that FDA is going to to turn them out. I saw a report that supposedly some of the Pfizer vaccines are in Chicago already. Well, it's great news, you know. It's it, and and it's going to be a while to get it to the the general population. Of course, a lot of people probably won't choose to take it anyway. But I think you know, to getting it out to healthcare workers, getting out to vulnerable populations, uh, that that'll help. Ha- happen within the next week, few weeks to months and i think we'll do much to um to at least reduce the the mortality from the disease which is i think what we're really going for when we come back with dr roger klein former head of molecular oncology at the cleveland clinic i'm going to talk about morality stats as it relates to covid and particularly this research paper done by a applied economics student a graduate student at johns hopkins that was published and then removed for fear that people could misinterpret the data and the conclusions from it. We'll get to Dr. Klein's perspective when we come back. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dr. Roger Klein, former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, talking about uh, all things related to COVID-19, including the developments on the vaccine front. Were you uh, aware of this uh, controversy that bubbled up over the weekend about this research coming out of Johns Hopkins, a, a student in the uh, Applied Economics Master's Program at Johns Hopkins who looked at some of the mortality data from CDC? And essentially her conclusion was 
what we see compared to historically this time of year and then on an annualized basis is uh, not necessarily excess death with respect to COVID, but rather deaths from other causes being recategorized as COVID deaths, deaths from respiratory illness, deaths from heart disease being recategorized as COVID. You know, I don't, there, I don't see any there, there was any particular political agenda about it. She's just sort of crunching numbers as an economics project or econometric project. And yet uh, Johns Hopkins took this research down, suggesting that not that the data was inaccurate, but that it could lead to um, misleading conclusions, although they offered no alternative conclusions from the data. And it just uh, speaks to sort of the larger issue of research that you don't like, the implications of research you don't like, you just eliminate the research if there's the right political pressure. Yeah, I think that's right. So this, I heard this, and I didn't look into it in great detail, but I, others have reported that, that excess mortality, and particularly in older uh, age groups, um, it isn't uh, what one might expect in, from hearing news reports about COVID-19, and does support the idea, along with other CDC-reported data, that most folks have comorbidities. And so, if, you know, if people would, I mean, you know, so a lot of the people who have died probably would have died anyway within a, a year. I hate to, you know, I'm not trying to be uh, callous about it, but I no. think there's a lot we have to learn. But, you know, when something strikes elderly people and people who are really old are the ones most at risk, those folks are, don't have a long lifespan ahead of them anyway. It's not hard to understand uh, uh, that. It, and I agree with you, you know, look, Science and medicine is not immune to political influences the same way everybody else is. Look, I, I was reading Cheryl Atkinson's uh, book. I've, I've started her book, her new book this weekend, Slanted. It's called, and it's a great book for somebody like me, you know, to come in and and I and I and and the idea that these narratives don't influence science and medicine, I think, would be misplaced. You know, we try to be objective, but we're, we're not we're not outside society. Let's put it that way. What about Tony Fauci? I know he is still um, the oracle of infectious diseases in the West, but the, the, this, you know, the statements you heard at the top about you know Christmas is going to be like Thanksgiving, is going to be like next Thanksgiving, is going to be like next Christmas. It's um, it's not just doom and gloom. I mean, to some extent, uh, he's the boy who cried wolf, isn't he? I mean, yes, uh, there were predictions about there could be a second wave in the winter, right? A lot of predictions about that. So then. The what we did in the run up to that second wave was ineffectual or we shouldn't have stopped the total lockdowns we were in in the spring or or what is it exactly this they're sort of predicting things after the fact and pretending like they saw it all along. We've known all along this is a contagious respiratory virus. Most people who have it don't don't know they have it. So, of course, it spreads pretty readily. And once people spend more time indoors together you're going to you're going to see uh, increased spread. So and I don't think any of this is really a surprise. Uh, you will note that the death rate, uh, at least certainly based on reported cases, has been has continued to fall. I think the hospitalizations are up, but people aren't really they're not That's going in sensitivity units the way they did. And I think Dr. Fauci's representing a perspective that that I guess I you know I take issue with to some extent as we've we've discussed in the past. I, you know, I, I think there isn't all that much we can do, unfortunately, to prevent this virus. And I think people are uh, protecting themselves in many respects. So older, sicker people are tending to avoid contact with others. That's part of the reason the death rate is falling. And, and the infections are skewing toward younger people, which, as some have pointed out, could, in fact, protect elderly people 
because as as pe- more and more people get infected, the virus has fewer places to go, and then it you know it, it more or less ultimately burns out. So I think you know I, I think we need to take a balanced approach. Life cannot stop. We can't shut no. down the world for two years but for a virus that for most people represents a benign illness. Speaking of kids, though, this this you know the the unintended consequences the. Uh the opportunity costs that uh, are so little discussed. This from in the pages of the New York Times, no less, stunningly, by an immunologist and a pediatrician or professor of pediatrics at Columbia. Quarantine may negatively affect kids' immune systems. And the authors suggest the world is unwittingly conducting what amounts to the largest immunological experiment in the history on our own children. Keeping children inside, sanitizing their living spaces and their hands, and largely isolating them. In doing so, we're preventing large numbers of them from becoming infected or transmitting the virus. But we may also be unintentionally inhibiting the proper development of children's immune systems. And they they mention the E word that shall, shall not be spoken of, exposure. And that failing to train our immune systems properly can have serious consequences. And they talk about research both uh, with respect to infants and peanut allergies as as well as respect to uh, mice raised in germ-free conditions versus mice who were not and so on and so forth um, so that w- not, not only uh, how are we potentially compromising our children's intellectual and social development with school lockdowns but now we're potentially compromising their life expectancy by uh, negatively impacting their immune systems and the development of their immune system. Yeah, so, so, so I think that's a real risk. And I, if you, you can look back to the Spanish flu epidemic in, in 1919, 1920, uh, what, that was an H1N1 type, vi- type of flu virus. And, and, and it's hypothesized that, that part of the reason H, the H1N1 uh, epidemic that we had uh, uh, you know, just a few years ago, wasn't as severe was because it didn't impact elderly people. And the, the hypothesis is that those folks were infected with a similar strain during the Spanish flu and had immunity. And I think it's, you know, it should be well taken. We In other countries, you know, some of the Asian countries, for example, one of the reasons that it may seem to, that they may seem to have had fewer problems is because they have more exposures to to similar antigens, similar viruses that that create cross reactivity. I can't tell you that for sure, but you know, we, we all know if we go to if we go to some countries and we drink the water, for example, we get sick. The people there don't. We have immune systems for a reason, and I and I, I think shield attempting to shield uh, shield and put people in bubbles is not it, it, it does it, it it risks not ensuring proper development. Of, uh, of our ability to protect ourselves. He is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, and former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, uh, Joe Biden continues to make personnel decisions for a Biden administration. He hopes will come to pass uh, starting on December 14th if the election is certified in his favor. 
Well, the latest round of decisions has to do with his comp team. <laughs> There's a great, a great picture uh, posted online that I retweeted at Dan Prof Show. You can check out. It's uh, his comp team with uh, Jen Psaki, former Obama era State Department flack, and the uh, this entire team of young women. And I'm sure all the seven sisters of the apocalypse are duly represented, Smith and Barnard and Mount Holyoke and so forth. All these little Geppettos that are going to make the life of Julia a, a real non-binary social justice warrior. Uh, and and all, all really that's missing is uh, to bring uh, Lacey back to Jen Psaki's Cagney. Jen Psaki and Marie Harf, remember now, on Fox News. Marie Har, Fox News contributor, they were the Cagney and Lacey of the left at the State Department during Obama's ignominious tenure. Anyway, it's just fascinating. This is what we're going to get for comms. And, of course, they will be uh, treated with uh, uh, reverence by the D.C. press corps. A D.C. press corps is th- that is busily working on stories about Hunter Biden, you say? No, no. <laughs> about... Uh, whether or not Joe Biden and uh, Biden administration would be beholden to the most radical elements that dominate the party, whether Joe Biden is going to capitulate to the demands of Black Lives Matter Marxists to defund the police and the prisons, those sorts of things that are materially relevant to your life, your public safety, economic opportunity, other such issues. No, no. The Daily Beast, which considered itself a serious left-leaning outlet, left-leaning, I use that sarcastically, had a lengthy feature story over the weekend about Beth Lee Crowther. You know Beth Lee Crowther, the pet psychic. Oh, yeah. Beth Lee Crowther says she had a mind-to-mind communication. She communicated with Joe Biden's two pet dogs telepathically. Uh, she um, said that uh, her communications gave her great insight into a Biden administration. This was newsworthy to the Daily Beast. The very first thing I got was that they were both very excited about moving to the White House, Beth Lee Crowther told the Daily Beast. Pet psychic. I had a real connection. I felt the excitement of theirs. They show me that Joe Biden is very bonded to his dogs and has a real connection to them. They kept showing me that although he has rescued one of his dogs, the dogs feel in many ways they have rescued him. So it's a, it's a relationship of equals. Uh, she also added that Biden talks to his dogs like they are people about his ideas and hopes for the future. And I'm sure he also receives his dog's ideas as well. This is fascinating insight. You definitely want to read this whole think piece over at the Daily Beast about the uh, the pet psychic. Uh, so apparently, according to her, the Biden administration is going to be some bad family guy episode with uh, of course, Joe Biden in the role of Peter, and uh, maybe his dogs, if they're that smart, may, they apparently talk, at least to Joe Biden and to this pet psychic in the role of Brian. So we'll look forward to that great, wonderful insight in advance of a potential Biden administration from the very serious, sober, thoughtful, uh, vanguard of democracy, D.C. press corps as represented by the Daily Beast. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Let's get to a little bit of what Chris Krebs had to say on 60 Minutes last night. He is the former head of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, which, uh, among other things, has election security uh, under its charge. He was fired after the election by President Trump 
after sort of openly disputing President Trump's claim that fraud had occurred in the election. This is what uh, Krebs had to say sort of as a general statement about the 2020 election. I have confidence in the security of this election because I know the work that we've done for four years in support of our state and local partners. I know the work that the intelligence community has done, that the Department of Defense has done, that the FBI has done, that my team has done. I know that these systems are more secure. I know, based on what we have seen, that any attacks on the election were not successful. He called uh, the idea that systems were hacked, the claims made mainly by Sidney Powell, most specifically, and uh, brashly. That there is some hacking of these election vendors and their software and their systems across the country. It's, it's just, it's nonsense. Just nonsense, he said. Krebs also said that the fail-safe with respect to ensuring that the election was secure, paper ballots. Paper ballots give you the ability to audit. And that's really one of the keys to success for a secure 2020 election. 95% of the ballots cast in the 2020 election had a paper record associated with it. Compared to 2016, about 82%. And with a paper record, you can go back and verify what the machine is saying by physically counting the paper. That gives you the ability to prove that there was no malicious algorithm or hacked software that adjusted the tally of the vote. Well, he's potentially believable, but what he said does not preclude the possibility of fraud, including fraud that would involve vendors of the voting systems, the uh, hardware as well as the software. So, for example, and hypothetically, I don't know this, but just saying it's possible, the open question as to the vote counting stopping in the wee hours of the Wednesday morning following the Tuesday election, so November 4th morning. Is it possible that they had real-time handle on what the vote totals were? You know, you know in big states with big metropolitan areas sort of what you need to come out of Milwaukee County with, what you need to come out, come out of Philadelphia with in order to win uh-huh. Wisconsin, you know, generally speaking. So if you know what you need to come out with and you're not there, then do you have – you could have a bunch of phonied-up ballots that are processed through the machines – that are recorded by the machines accurately, that are recorded and recounted accurately in a recount like happened in Dane and Milwaukee counties most recently, and say, well, look, the counts match, no fraud, no hacking. Well, it's a combination of, of high-tech and low-tech. I'm not saying it happened. I'm saying it's possible. So what Krebs said yesterday, and, of course, Scott Pelley doing the interview for 60 Minutes, okay. is there's no follow-up questions. There's no. No, there's no thinking going on there. They're just prompting for the answers they want. This election was secure. Americans should have 100% confidence mm-hmm. in it. End of story, period. Uh, that's a wrap. Right. Mm-hmm. Cut. Tape. But, I mean, there are other scenarios not contemplated by Krebs in which voter fraud could have occurred, and this is why these things are litigated, and this is why you do a recount, and then you're able to actually watch the count and to look at the ballots and to do signature checks, and, and then you start to record more evidence of irregularities that can then be later introduced as evidence in a complaint to pursue legal remedies. That's what's actually in process. Uh, I know 60 Minutes want that to be like the definitive statement on the campaign, that interview, but it's not even if you take everything Krebs said as accurate. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined 
by by Alan Bakari, who's a senior technology correspondent at Breitbart News. He's also the author of, I wanted to make sure I had the book right, hashtag deleted, big tech's battle to erase the Trump movement and steal the election. Alan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi, great to be on. So why don't we start with what uh, Chris Krebs had to say yesterday in that 60 Minutes interview and, and what your handle on it was in terms of this idea that, look, uh, you have these election cyber election experts and other people saying there's no evidence of, yes, there's perhaps even maybe conceding, yes, there are these statistical anomalies, but there's no evidence of massive fraud, whether of a high-tech or low-tech nature. And so the election was legitimate. The American people should have 100% confidence in it. And it's time to uh, inaugurate Joe Biden. Well, I mean, you know, Chris would say that given that it was his uh, job to install election integrity, but he's not in a position to do that. He hasn't investigated all of these suspicious incidents in the election. He doesn't know what went on in every precinct. He doesn't seem to like Trump very much. He's been another one of these anti-Trump people who were embedded in the bureaucracy. They, you know, just came out at the right moment to challenge the, uh, the, the president beyond things. I also want to talk about a bit about the mainstream media. It's really fascinating. If you go through the last four years of coverage since the 2016 election, you'll find endless stuff about hacked voting machines and potential fraud and potential hacking of the 2016 election. Of course, all of that, uh, including, by the way, about the Smartmatic machines, there was lots of media coverage about that and how vulnerable they are. Of course, that's now abruptly stopped in the wake of the uh, 2020 election night. So, uh, yeah, it's not, 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 not at all surprising um, to see that, to see that change in coverage. Well, this is exactly what Bob Epstein, the Harvard-trained psychologist, uh, has argued for years now, testifying uh, before Senate subcommittee back in July of 2019. And he was uh, out again last week talking about uh, the research that he did, he and his team, which is pretty substantial, continuing seven years of research in terms of Google's uh, impact. And this is somebody who is a was a Hillary Clinton supporter in 2016, Joe Biden supporter in 2020. He's a liberal. He argued, I believe, that Google changed at minimum. He doesn't have the upper register yet, but at minimum, Google moved six million votes. And uh, obviously, that is uh, millions more votes than decided the election over the spread of a few states. But through manipulating search algorithms, they, they moved at least six million votes, according to Bob Epstein. That was a highly plausible number, I think. And the reason it's plausible is because of the level of information that all of these companies have on each and every person using their services. They know exactly who the undecided voters are. They know exactly what issues each one is interested in. They already provide, uh, these companies already provide tailored content to everyone based on their interests in order to, you know, sell us products, get us to click on ads. So uh, when you imagine them doing the same with regards to politics, you can kind of understand the level of influence they can have and why it goes so far beyond, say, you know, bias in the mainstream media, where uh, we're sort of aware of what's going on, we're sort of aware of the partisan biases of news hosts, but we're not aware of it when it comes to these Silicon Valley algorithms, which are all hidden from view. You know, consistent with that here, again, just in terms of media influence, you, you talk about it, but is there a way to quantify it? Well, Bob Epstein is quantifying Google's manipulations. Also, uh, Brent Pozell's group, the Media Research Center, commissioned a survey of 1,700 people who voted for Biden in seven swing states. They found that uh, they gave uh, like awareness of eight different stories, found that 82 percent of people who voted for Biden did not know of at least one of the eight stories and that 35 percent of people who voted for Biden 
for example, did not know the allegations from Tara Reid, who said that Biden sexually assaulted her. One in three did not. And then you go on to the jobs numbers from June to October. They didn't have an appreciation for that and so forth. You know, if they would have known, had awareness of these stories, if those stories would have been covered, generally speaking, the way they would be covered if they were good news for, say, a Joe Biden, that that would have changed enough of those surveyed votes to have swung the election to Trump, even even setting aside all of the allegations of fraud and misconduct. That's believable to me, too, that so few people knew about their stories. We did a, we've done multiple um, news stories of Breitbart News showing how Google actually took clicks and impressions to Breitbart News. They took them to zero in midsummer after a major algorithm change. So we were completely wiped out on searches about Joe Biden, and it remained uh, that way until election night. Well, and, and, and you wrote about this, too, what Facebook did after, just so we can loop Facebook in here as well, Facebook did after the election. So they, they drive you through sort of what you see and what you don't see to a decision. They try and drive as many people to a decision. And then they try and drive you to an understanding of the implications of the decision you made. So they drive you to vote for Biden. And then after the election, they suppress Breitbart and promote CNN to essentially discount any suggestions that may be circulating that there was anything untoward about how the election was conducted. Yes, it's, it's called a news ecosystem. They call it the news ecosystem quality ranking. This was fascinating to me to see this. Uh, I think it was the New York Times that reported on the existence of this thing, because this is one of the things that my uh, my sources told me about uh, in the book in, uh, in Deleted. There were a number of interviews with Silicon Valley whistleblowers inside these big companies. But he told me that every single one of these companies has this score that they can uh, use to turn down the volume on certain types of content to push it further down people's feeds, push it further down search results. And that sounds like, you know, a conspiracy theory. All of the things that sound like conspiracy theories about what Silicon Valley uh, is doing, you know, they're all turning out to be true. He is Alan Bakari, senior technology correspondent at Breitbart, author of Deleted, hashtag Deleted, Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election. Alan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Great to be on. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show general michael flynn giving his uh, first interview since his pardon over the weekend, his pardon just happened on Wednesday, of course, before Thanksgiving. And uh, General Flynn had this to say about the uh, slow-moving coup attempt that began four years ago and persists to this day. First, what started back uh, in the 2016 campaign into the opening months of the Trump presidency and continued. I mean, I, I think what we experienced over the last four years, and certainly uh, in the in the uh, late 2016 very late 2016 and early 2017 period was a very strong uh, effort to unseat a duly elected president and and really try to remove uh, Donald Trump by just political pressure, by technology pressure, by financial pressure early on in his uh, in his tenure. Maybe maybe to get him to just say, you know what, I'm not going to you know, I don't need this. I'm not going to put up with it and, and, and walk away. I think that there was some sentiment. In fact, I know there was some sentiment that. To maybe he'll just, you know, he's a he's a guy from New York. He's never not a politician. 
he'll just say, you know what, I, I don't need this stuff. I got better things to do and leave. And uh, thank God that he didn't. And that then lasted when he didn't. That then continued. That effort continued, continued to go after him in any way possible to remove him through some means. Flynn is right in his characterization. If you recall that time, there absolutely was this uh, thread out being spun by the D.C. press corps that, oh, you know, as soon as the going gets tough, Trump, who's just a front-running reality TV star, is going to fade. He's going to say this is too much. He's going to say this isn't fun. This isn't easy like it was cracked up to be when he realizes the magnitude of the job he's going to wilt and uh, go away of course quite the opposite happened he rose into uh, the job he grew with the job in so many ways i would argue and so they needed to go to plans b c and d which is exactly what they did from talking about the 25th amendment with armchair psychologists on msnbc saying the president doesn't have the mental capacity to be in the job even though that these yale psychiatrists had never spoken to the president in their life to uh, obviously the investigation and then the impeachment and everything that has transpired over the last four years. And Michael Flynn saying in that same interview, it persisted right up and through the election, giving one example from the 2016 vanquished. This is still a coup in progress, but now it's a little bit different. And it's a, it's it's actually it's sort of they up their game when they lost in 2016. I think that there was a decision. And I and I, you know, I believe this and and. But there was some type of decision to say, we're not going to allow this to happen again. I mean, all you got to do is go back and uh, and listen to some of the comments this past summer from some of the some of the senior people that that were, you know, that are part of this this Democratic Party. Right. I mean, Hillary Clinton won being I think it was back in July or certainly mid summertime frame where she said, you know, uh, you know, no matter what, Joe Biden should not concede. What, What are we talking about there? I mean. Why would she say that in in the middle of the summer, three, maybe four months before an election? And perhaps uh, Republicans and conservatives and even many Trump supporters were slow to recognize the forces that were aligned against uh, the president, uh, the administration, their interests, really. Slow to recognize them for what they were. It's just hard to impute malicious motives to other people. A lot of people have a difficult time doing that. Oh, we just disagree, but they're not really out to do me harm. Well, uh, we uh, mentioned this piece that was posted over at Powerline blog, our friends John Hindraker and company over there, by David Horowitz last week called Fighting Words. And David Horowitz, radical son, minces no words. Democrats are not Democrats. They are totalitarians. Progressives are not progressive. They are reactionaries. For uh, more development of those statements, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid David Horowitz. He is the founder and president of the David Horwitz Freedom Center, editor of Front Page Magazine, and author of Blitz, Trump Will Smash the Left and Win. David Horowitz, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's start with uh, those pronouncements. Democrats are not Democrats. They are totalitarians. Progressives are not progressive. They are reactionaries. Tell us what Also, Republicans have lost these political battles because there's a political war going on. The Democrats call Republicans racist. Traitors. They call the President of the United States a traitor, uh, accuse him of killing 220,000 or now, whatever it is, 250,000 coronavirus patients. And Republicans' response to that is uh, you can hear this from Kevin McCarthy all the time oh, they're just playing politics. That's not playing, that's war. They're trying to kill you, and they're, you know, sort of successful. 
Democrats are racist. Identity politics is racism. They're the traitors. They refuse to accept the results of the 2016 election. Our entire democratic system rests on recognizing that you settle things at the polls and accepting when you lose and organizing to win the next time. But the Democrats formed a resistance to Trump. That's where there's incredible division in our country. They've also fixed this election, it should be quite obvious. They're also character assassins. There isn't a, a significant Republican who hasn't been slandered, libeled, defamed, and you just interviewed one of them, by Democrats. Stop treating them with kid gloves. That, that's what I'm saying in this piece. You've got to fight fire with fire. So how do you fight uh, totalitarians, uh, reactionaries? Why are they totalitarians? Well, identity politics wants to make everything political. It's not just that they want to have a dictatorship, which they do. The Democrats have worked relentlessly to to develop a one-party system. They're against the Electoral College. They want to eliminate, it's in the Constitution. They want to eliminate, actually, the Senate. They want to pack the Supreme Court. They want to have mail-in ballots that are uh, easy uh, to defraud. Um, they don't want to have an election day. They want you to be able to vote for months. So it makes it easy, of course, to fix. They have declared war on our system, is what the Democrats have done. But identity politics is all-encompassing. So it's not just that they want to set up a one-party dictatorship, which they do. It should be obvious to everyone by now. But they want to control you right down to the pronouns you use. In Canada, they're already prosecuting people for not using the you know, proper pronouns, say, to address transgendered people, criminalizing it. So it's like every aspect of, of life is, is under their um, strictures. They don't want you to go to church or synagogue during a virus epidemic, but they, it's okay to go to a liquor store or Walmart. These people are very dangerous people. The leadership of the Democrat Party today are dangerous, dangerous people. And it's time for conservatives and patriots to recognize that and to fight it the way it needs to be fought. Don't be so polite. The only Republican I know that's called a Democrat a racist is Trump. And that was a black Democrat, Elijah Cummings. And he was right. Elijah Cummings made himself a millionaire uh, running a district in, uh, in, in Baltimore where, you know, poverty is off the charts, the schools are rotten, and so forth. And he was there for 40 years. And what he did was enrich himself. If, if, if he had been a, uh, a Republican, the Democrats would be calling him a racist. When we come back with David Horowitz, I want to get uh, his insights on what fighting back against the reactionaries and totalitarians, the identitarians, what that looks like for the uh, average American. More with David Horowitz right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
We're back with David Horowitz uh, talking about his piece at, over at Powerline, powerlineblog.com, called Fighting Words. And before the break, uh, David, you made the case for fighting back and what that looks like. So um, here's a question. Uh, Shelby Steele's What Killed Michael Brown documentary, that seems to me a good example of fighting back with somebody like Shelby Steele who has profile, intellectual profile, and then also artistic profile to, to put together this documentary. What is it that um, ordinary Americans can do in the, uh, you know, in the, the occasion of their day-to-day lives to be part of that fighting back that you're describing? Being For everyday waged. people, you have to stay, don't stray too far outside your comfort zone, but you've got to be a lot tougher than you are now. Okay. Look, racism is racism. Uh, just to, if the Democrats are appointing vice presidential candidates on the basis of their race, that's racism. You know, just say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I well, just just in the in the way you fight these political wars, you, you can't uh, you know you can't orchestrate everything you do on the basis of race. You know, every time there's an appointment come up, the Democrat Party is a racist party. Uh, you know, if if they had a Supreme Court appointment, the battle would be was going to be black, uh, female, you know, all these things. This is not America. This is not. This is not. You know, the Constitution doesn't use the words white, black, male, or female, because the vision of the founders was that to create a society in which individuals were judged on their merits, not on their gender or their race. Well, the Democrat Party the, is an anti-American yeah. party. You respond to the uh, assertion that uh, the left, this identitarian left you're describing, ultimately is going to be a snake that eats its own tail. And a good example of this just transpired uh, over the weekend or last week before the holiday, which was Dianne Feinstein being demoted from the ranking member yeah. of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Because the Germans and, have a term for, for, for how we should react. It's called shot. Well, I get I get that part of it. No, no, no. I, I I get I get that part of it. But but the the idea that she was demoted because she wasn't strident enough. This is somebody you, the the dogma because lives loudly within you. Lindsey Graham if she's right, right, right. So this so is so. No, I know. But wait, 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 David, wait a second. So somebody as left as Diane Feinstein, who essentially accidentally elevated Amy Coney Barrett. Is there any merit to the argument that it's those examples show how the left is going to sort of inexorably marginalize itself? Yeah, but look, they can do so much damage in the process. Yeah. I can mention that. I mean, they're going to go out to try to arm Iran again. Uh, you know, it took 70 years. The Soviet system was bankrupt from the start. It took 70 years to get rid of it. Think of all the lives that were ruined. And the lives that they're going to ruin now, the Democrats, if they if they get enough power. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it's a good posture to say they're going to devour themselves and they'll, uh, you know, we don't have to do anything but watch them fall. I think we're in a very in a good position, even if they steal this election, to fight. Although I'm worried about the Georgia Senate race. They're letting them, you know, they're going to steal that, too. I mean, the Republicans just have to get a war mentality. 
He is David. I mean, that's the gist of what I've, I've said in, in the article. It's time. It's time to go to war, people. Uh, you know, if if there's a, a Democrat that genuinely reaches out, I, you know, I mean, every now and then there's a Joe Manchin. Um, fine, but but don't treat the you know these people with kid gloves. Don't pretend that Joe Biden is not a corrupt liar and a, and a character assassin. He accused Trump of being a racist. I mean, this is, you know, four years into a Trump presidency, which has done more for black people than any other president, as he says, since Lincoln. That's true. He is, anyway. he is David Horowitz, founder and president of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, editor of Front Page Magazine, the book Blitz, Trump Will Smash the Left and Win, and check out his column again, Fighting Words, which I will... Uh, tweet out at Dan Proft as well. David Horowitz, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the show and President Trump at uh, Thanksgiving press briefing got uh, into a bit of a spirited exchange with uh, Reuters reporter about his tone with respect to the president. But uh, look, um, uh, the question is going to be con- is going to continue to put to him, be put to him as we get closer to December 14th, the date of the Electoral College meeting to certify the election results such as they are. And President Trump and his legal team have all acknowledged that they understand the clock they're on. And they understand what might come to pass. So you expect these contingencies are being gamed out as they should be. I mean, they have Biden beating Obama on Obama's vote in areas that mattered in terms of the election in swing states. And yet he's losing to Obama all over the place. But he's beating Obama in swing states, which are the states that mattered for purposes of the election. So, no, I can't say that at all. I think it's a it's a possibility. They're trying to look. Between you people, don't answer, don't talk to me that way. You're just a you're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. I like it. Uh, that lightweight in question, Jeff Mason from Reuters, as I said, and President Trump is, you know, is previously saying it's and said again uh, last Wednesday, difficult to concede, even though he recognizes that this is something that uh, must be contemplated. It's going to be a very hard thing to concede because we know there was massive fraud. So as to whether or not I can get this apparatus moving this quickly, because time isn't on our side. Everything else is on our side. Facts are on our side. This was a massive fraud. Yeah, time is not on our side, but everything else is on our side. Um, That is a a pragmatic understanding of the situation, which is why it was interesting, because on Wednesday I gamed out what Trump is gaming out in his own head and probably with staff and advisors as well, which is if this is where we're at on December 14th, then this, if we're at a different place than that Uh, regarding decisions such as do I address supporters and by extension the nation uh, or do I say nothing? And then 
subsequent to that about it, the inauguration and so on and so forth. But uh, just that first decision about parting thoughts in the wake that in the in the event that I have to concede, I essentially have given my word, I'm going to do what was not afforded to me, which is provide for a peaceful transfer of power if that's where we're at, because I ran out of time and we couldn't pull together the necessary evidence to support the claims. We have a theory. The theory has a lot of circumstantial basis, but we weren't able to pull it together. We weren't able to perhaps or didn't focus the way we should have, arguably, as I've argued, as you heard Richard Epstein earlier in the show argue, NYU law professor, that uh, we're going to have to live to fight another day like Andrew Jackson did in 1828. And that's sort of the subject of VDH's column, Victor Davis Hanson, going through the same machinations. So when I read my, you know, here's what Trump should say remarks, my little riff uh, last week's show, I got some email back saying, you know, I'm not going to listen to the show anymore. Trump should never concede. This was fraud, so on and so forth. I'm not saying he should concede. Gaming out contingencies. That's what any good leader does. That's what any good advisor to a leader would do. You have to prepare. You have to think about these things. These are the realities on the ground. You hear Trump openly contemplating them in Q&A with reporters. I understand that people are disgusted and exasperated by so much of what has transpired, both in this election and, frankly, over the last four years with respect to how this president has been besieged from the allied forces of the cultural left. But that doesn't get you out of the decisions that need to be made in the very near term based on how successful you are in pursuing the truth in courts of law through state legislative hearings, and in any other form that's appropriate. And so VDH is essentially saying the same thing. Victor Davis Hanson, you know, who, he wrote the book, The Case for Trump. So he's not exactly soft on Trump as uh, anybody who listens to this show or listens to VDH, reads VDH very well knows. He um, writes, as I sort of intimated, it's a bit rich for the media to warn of Trump's dangers to the spirit of smooth presidential transitions when such protocols were deliberately rendered null and void in 2016. But that's the past. What matters now are the interests of the country first and Trump's constituents second. So Trump has a number of pathways. One, keep addressing legitimate reports of voter irregularities. Continue to ask the court to set aside any legal votes that do not conform to state voting laws. Absolutely. Totally agree. Should do that. But listen to what else VDH says. Trump, within days, will have to prove that any such crimes and lapses warped state counts enough to have wrongly elected Joe Biden president. Trump realistically has perhaps a week or so left to either make his case or concede. Then to maintain the Senate majority for Republicans and to save the very rules and protocols of the Senate, the Supreme Court and the Constitution, Trump needs to barnstorm Georgia. He needs to enthuse the conservative base to reelect the state's two incumbent senators there, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. And in addition to what VDH says about saving the rules and protocols of the Senate, SCOTUS, the Constitution, it's also saving, in large measure, the leisure, the uh, legacy of Trump's presidency and his accomplishments. After that, Trump's Make America Great Again agenda will be codified as his party's own, writes VDH. He has a year more to decide whether he wishes to play kingmaker among would-be Republican congressional and presidential candidates or run himself for a second term, Grover Cleveland style. Two options not mutually exclusive, but he uh, his other alternative is a bit bleaker. Currently, Trump-affiliated lawyers claim they can prove their bombshell allegations of historic voting fraud by leftists and foreign interests. They further claim Trump was robbed not of a close election, but of a veritable landslide, constituting the greatest scandal in U.S. history. But... So far, none of these advocates have produced the requisite whistleblowers, computer data, or forensic evidence to prove their astounding charges. 
if they don't produce it in a few days and if Trump pivots to put his fate in their hands, then the pilloried Republicans may well lose the Senate races in Georgia. And with that historic setback, he would endanger his legacy, his influence, and perhaps a crack at a second presidential term. He risked, uh, risks potentially being reduced to the status of sore presidential losers such as Al Gore and Hillary Clinton. So those are real strategic decisions he needs to make on the merits and on what is best for the country, his constituents, and himself. That's a conversation we're having. It may be uh, uncomfortable to have. It may be annoying given uh, everything that uh, has happened and that we believe to have happened. Giving theories we have a great deal of confidence in, but unfortunately not the evidence that's required for a court of law. But these are the things that not need to be contemplated. And when you have deep thinkers, great historians like Victor Davis Hanson contemplating them and suggesting essentially Trump supporters do the same, then we're, we need to have a conversation about it, as difficult as it is. These are difficult times in the country that are going to require some difficult conversations, including this one. And you fight it out every day until your options are further limited, and then you have to call certain questions maybe you didn't want to call. That's all I was doing on Wednesday. That's what I'm doing here. And so is Victor Davis Hanson. This is Dan Brown. danproffshow.com Welcome back to the show and sort of continuing on this theme of uh, quality education as a way out of difficult circumstances growing up, way out of poverty specifically. I watched Hillbilly Elegy over the weekend. This is the uh, sort of surprise bestseller, uh, autobiographical in nature, Hillbilly Elegy, written by J.D. Vance, who is from Middletown, Ohio, lived in Appalachia uh, from a poor family, family that had uh, gone through cycles of poverty. This is, you know, white rural as opposed to the more familiar story of black or Latino and urban. Compelling nonetheless, he gets out of that circumstance, does J.D. Vance, and goes on to earn a law degree from Harvard Law, meets his future wife there, and, and uh, she's portrayed in the film as well. The book is really good, and it's interesting. It tackles these issues surrounding poverty in places like Appalachia you know, in a, in a layered way, and it is not uh, pandering. The book is not. Uh, so I was interested to see how this would uh, turn out when translated on film. I mean, you've got a lot of stars in this. It was really interesting that uh, Ron Howard picked up the film to do it. Uh, Amy Adams stars as J.D. Vance's wife, great actress. Glenn Close as his grandma, his uh, mamaw, I think is the pronunciation. You know, and they they give great performances. But I, I got to say, and I don't want to be cliche here, the book better than the movie, but uh, by leaps and bounds. Uh, there's a lot of criticism online about the movie being poverty porn and so on. It's, it's tone deaf. It's offensive. It's stereotypical. I mean, it's J.D. Vance's autobiography. So, I mean, uh, I'm sorry. There is some truth in stereotypes. And this is the world that J.D. Vance experienced growing up. If you find his descriptions of some of the family members of his stereotypical, well, uh, if you're offended by that, sorry. But that's his life. So it's, of course, it's just ridiculous. It's people that have to 
treat everything as magical and uh, anybody who's downtrodden as necessarily heroic rather than, in many cases, somebody who's made a series of terrible decisions and can't seem to make proper decisions, at least if they want to get out of cycles of addiction and dependency and so forth. But the movie is disappointing for me, I got to say. It just comes across a little flat for me, a little lifetime-ish, you know, a little bit like it's a lifetime movie, even with the strong performances of wonderful actresses like Amy Adams and Glenn Close. It just didn't translate well, I guess, is the best way. Whoever, and I I didn't look, whoever adapted the uh, book into a screenplay for the purposes of the Netflix offering, I just don't think captured enough of the texture so that it did become a little bit unidimensional, whereas the book itself really captures the many dimensions of all of the people that J.D. Vance wrote about, his family. It's definitely worth reading the book. I definitely encourage you to read the book. You know, the movie is uh, something you can see or not see. I don't think it would materially change the takeaway from J.D. Vance's offering if uh, you just read the book and and uh, didn't see the movie. I think uh, the book is what prompts some reflection. The movie may be a little bit less so. This is the is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Let's get to a little bit of what Chris Krebs had to say on 60 Minutes last night. He is the former head of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, which, uh, among other things, has election security uh, under its charge. He was fired after the election by President Trump after sort of openly disputing President Trump's claim that fraud had occurred in the election. This is what uh, Krebs had to say sort of as a general statement about the 2020 election. I have confidence in the security of this election because I know the work that we've done for four years in support of our state and local partners. I know the work that the intelligence community has done, that the Department of Defense has done, that the FBI has done, that my team has done. I know that these systems are more secure. I know, based on what we have seen, that any attacks on the election were not successful. He called uh, the idea that systems were hacked. The claims made mainly by Sidney Powell, most specifically, and... uh Brashly. That there is some hacking of these election vendors in their software and their systems across the country. It's, it's just, it's nonsense. Just nonsense, he said. Krebs also said that the fail-safe with respect to ensuring that the election was secure, paper ballots. Paper ballots give you the ability to audit. And that's really one of the keys to success for a secure 2020 election. of the ballots cast in the 2020 election had a paper record associated with it. Compared to 2016, about 82%. And with a paper record, you can go back and verify what the machine is saying by physically counting the paper. That gives you the ability to prove that there was no malicious algorithm or hacked software that adjusted the tally of the vote. Well, he's potentially believable, but what he said does not preclude the possibility of fraud, including fraud that would involve vendors of the voting systems, the uh, hardware as well as the software. 
So, for example, um, hypothetically, I don't know this, but just saying it's possible, the open question as to the vote counting stopping in the wee hours of the Wednesday morning following the Tuesday election, so November 4th morning, is it possible that they had real-time handle on what the vote totals were? You know, you know, in big states with big metropolitan areas, sort of what you need to come out of Milwaukee County with, what you need to come out, come out of Philadelphia with in order to win uh-huh. Wisconsin, you know, generally speaking. So if you know what you need to come out with and you're not there, then do you have you could have a bunch of phonied up ballots that are processed through the machines that are recorded by the machines accurately, that are recorded and recounted accurately in a recount like happened in Dane and Milwaukee counties most recently, and say, well, look, the counts match, no fraud, no hacking. Well, it's a combination of, of high-tech and low-tech. I'm not saying it happened. I'm saying it's possible. So what Krebs said yesterday, and, of course, Scott Pelley doing the interview for 60 Minutes, oh, okay. is there's no follow-up questions. There's no. no there's no thinking going on there. They're just prompting for the answers they want. This election was secure. Americans should have 100% confidence mm-hmm. in it. End of story, period. Uh, that's a wrap, right? Mm-hmm. Cut tape. But, I mean, there are other scenarios not contemplated by Krebs in which voter fraud could have occurred, and this is why these things are litigated, and this is why you do a recount, and then you're able to actually watch the count and to look at the ballots and to do signature checks, and, and then you start to record more evidence of irregularities that can then be later introduced as evidence in a complaint to pursue legal remedies. That's what's actually in process. Uh, I know 60 Minutes want that to be like the definitive statement on the campaign, that interview, but it's not even if you take everything Krebs said as accurate. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by, by Alan Bakari, who's a senior technology correspondent at Breitbart News. He's also the author of, I wanted to make sure I had the book right, hashtag deleted, big tech's battle to erase the Trump movement and steal the election. Alan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi, great to be on. So why don't we start with what uh, Chris Krebs had to say yesterday in that 60 Minutes interview and, and what's your handle on it it was in terms of this idea that, look, uh, you have these election cyber election experts and other people saying there's no evidence of, yes, there's perhaps even maybe conceding, yes, there are these statistical anomalies, but there's no evidence of massive fraud, whether of a high-tech or low-tech nature. And so the election was legitimate. The American people should have 100% confidence in it. And it's time to uh, inaugurate Joe Biden. Well, I mean, you know, Chris would say that given that it was his uh, job to install election integrity, but he's not in a position to do that. He hasn't investigated all of these suspicious incidents in the election. He doesn't know what went on in every precinct. He doesn't seem to like Trump very much. He's been another one of these anti-Trump people who were embedded in the bureaucracy. Uh, you know, just came out at the right moment to challenge the, uh, the, the president beyond things. I also want to talk about a bit about the mainstream media. It's really fascinating. If you go through the last four years of coverage since the 2016 election, you'll find endless stuff about hacked voting machines and potential fraud and potential hacking of the 2016 election. Of course, all of that, uh, including, by the way, about the Smartmatic machines. There was lots of media coverage about that and how vulnerable they are. Of course, that's now abruptly stopped in the wake of the uh, 2020 
election night. So, uh, yeah, it's not, 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 not at all surprising um, to see that, to see that change in coverage. Well, this is exactly what Bob Epstein, the Harvard-trained psychologist, uh, has argued for years now, testifying uh, before Senate subcommittee back in July of 2019. And he was uh, out again last week talking about uh, the research that he did, he and his team, which is pretty substantial, continuing seven years of research in terms of Google's uh, impact. And this is somebody who is a was a Hillary Clinton supporter in 2016, Joe Biden supporter in 2020, he's a liberal. He argued, I believe, that Google changed at minimum. He doesn't have the upper register yet, but at minimum, Google moved 6 million votes. And uh, obviously, that is uh, millions more votes than decided the election over the spread of a few states. But through manipulating search algorithms, they, they moved at least 6 million votes, according to Bob Epstein. That is a highly plausible number, I think. And the reason it's plausible is because of the level of information that all of these companies have on each and every person using their services. They know exactly who the undecided voters are. They know exactly what issues each one is interested in. They already provide, uh, these companies already provide tailored content to everyone based on their interests in order to, you know, sell us products, get us to click on ads. So uh, when you imagine them doing the same with regards to politics, you can kind of understand the level of influence they can have and why it goes so far beyond, say, you know, bias in the mainstream media, where uh, we're sort of aware of what's going on, we're sort of aware of the partisan biases of news hosts, but we're not aware of it when it comes to these Silicon Valley algorithms that are all hidden from view. You know, consistent with that here, again, just in terms of media influence, you, know, you talk about it, but is there a way to quantify it? Well, Bob Epstein is quantifying Google's manipulations. Also, uh, Brent Pozell's group, the Media Research Center, commissioned a survey of 1,700 people who voted for Biden in seven swing states. They found that uh, they gave uh, like awareness of eight different stories, found that 82 percent of people who voted for Biden did not know of at least one of the eight stories and that 35 percent of people who voted for Biden, for example, did not know the allegations from Tara Reid, who said that Biden sexually assaulted her. One in three did not. And then you go on to the jobs numbers from June to October. They didn't have an appreciation for that and so forth. You know, if they would have known, had awareness of these stories, if those stories would have been covered, generally speaking, the way they would be covered if they were good news for, say, a Joe Biden, that that would have changed enough of those surveyed votes to have swung the election to Trump, even even setting aside all of the allegations of fraud and misconduct. That's believable to me, too, that so few people knew about those stories. We did us. We've done multiple um, news stories of Breitbart News showing how Google actually took clicks and impressions to Breitbart News. They took them to zero in midsummer after a major algorithm change. So we were completely wiped out on searches about Joe Biden, and it remained uh, that way until election night. Well, and, and, and you wrote about this, too, what Facebook did after, just so we can loop Facebook in here as well, Facebook did after the election. So they, they drive you through sort of what you see and what you don't see to a decision. They try and drive as many people to a decision. And then they try and drive you to an understanding of the implications of the decision you made. So they drive you to vote for Biden. And then after the election, they suppress Breitbart and promote CNN to essentially discount any suggestions that may be circulating that there was anything untoward about how the election was conducted. Yes, it's, it's called a news ecosystem. They call it the news ecosystem quality ranking. This was fascinating to me to see this. Uh, I think people with the New York Times that reported on the existence of this thing, because this is one of the things that my uh, 
my sources told me about uh, in the book in uh, in deleted there were a number of interviews with silicon valley whistleblowers inside these big companies and he told me that every single one of these companies has this score that they can uh, use to turn down the volume on certain types of content to push it further down people's feeds push it further down search results and that sounds like you know a conspiracy theory all of the things that sound like conspiracy theories about what silicon valley uh, is doing you know they're all turning out to be true he is Alan Bakari, senior technology correspondent at Breitbart, author of Deleted, hashtag deleted, Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election. Alan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Great to be on. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show general michael flynn giving his uh, first interview since his pardon over the weekend, his pardon just happened on Wednesday, of course, before Thanksgiving. And uh, General Flynn had this to say about the uh, slow-moving coup attempt that began four years ago and persists to this day. First, what started back uh, in the 2016 campaign into the opening months of the Trump presidency and continued. I mean, I, I think what we experienced over the last four years, and certainly uh, in the in the uh, late 2016 very late 2016 and early 2017 period was a very strong uh, effort to unseat a duly elected president and and really try to remove uh, Donald Trump by just political pressure, by technology pressure, by financial pressure early on in his uh, in his tenure. Maybe maybe to get him to just say, you know what, I'm not going to you know, I don't need this. I'm not going to put up with it and, and, and walk away. I think that there was some sentiment. In fact, I know there was some sentiment that. To maybe he'll just, you know, he's a he's a guy from New York. He's never not a politician. He'll just say, you know what, I, I don't need this stuff. I got better things to do and leave. And uh, thank God that he didn't. And that then lasted when he didn't. That then continued. That effort continued, continued to go after him in any way possible to remove him through some means. Flynn is right in his characterization. If you recall that time, there absolutely was this uh, thread out being spun by the D.C. press corps that, oh, you know, as soon as the going gets tough, Trump, who's just a front-running reality TV star, is going to fade. He's going to say this is too much. He's going to say this isn't fun. This isn't easy like it was cracked up to be when he realizes the magnitude of the job he's going to wilt and uh, go away of course quite the opposite happened he rose into uh, the job he grew with the job in so many ways i would argue and so they needed to go to plans b c and d which is exactly what they did from talking about the 25th amendment with armchair psychologists on msnbc saying the president doesn't have the mental capacity to be in the job even though that these yale psychiatrists had never spoken to the president in their life to uh, obviously the Mueller investigation and then the impeachment and everything that has transpired over the last four years. And Michael Flynn saying in that same interview, it persisted right up and through the election, giving one example from the 2016 vanquished. This is still a coup in progress, but now it's a little bit different. And it's a, it's it's actually it's sort of they up their game when they lost in 2016. I think that there was a decision. And I and I, you know, I believe this and, and 
that there was some type of decision to say we're not going to allow this to happen again. I mean, all you got to do is go back and uh, and listen to some of the comments this past summer from some of the some of the senior people that that were you know that are part of this this Democratic Party, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton won being. I think it was back in July or certainly mid-summer time frame where she said, you know, uh, it, you know, no matter what, Joe Biden should not concede. What, what are we talking about there? I mean, why would she say that in, in the middle of the summer, three, maybe four months before an election? And perhaps uh, Republicans and conservatives and even many Trump supporters were slow to recognize the forces that were aligned against uh, the president, uh, the administration, their interests, really slow to recognize them for what they were. It's just hard to impute malicious motives onto other people. A lot of people have a difficult time doing that. Oh, we just disagree, but they're not really out to do me harm. Well, uh, we uh, mentioned this piece that was posted over at Powerline blog, our friends John Hindraker and company over there, by David Horowitz last week called Fighting Words. And David Horowitz, radical son, minces no words. Democrats are not Democrats. They are totalitarians. Progressives are not progressive, they are reactionaries. For uh, more development of those statements, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid David Horowitz. He is the founder and president of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, editor of Front Page Magazine, and author of Blitz, Trump Will Smash the Left and Win. David Horowitz, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's start with uh, those pronouncements. Democrats are not Democrats, they are totalitarians. Progressives are not progressive, they are reactionaries. They're also Republicans have lost these political battles because there's a political war going on. The Democrats call Republicans racists, traitors. They call the president of the United States a traitor, uh, accuse him of killing 220,000 or whatever it is, 250,000 coronavirus patients. And Republicans' response to that is, uh, you can hear this from Kevin McCarthy all the time, Oh, they're just playing politics. That's not playing. That's war. They're trying to kill you, and they're, you know, sort of successful. Democrats are racists. Identity politics is racism. They're the traitors. They refuse to accept the results of the 2016 election. Our entire democratic system rests on recognizing that you settle things at the polls and accepting when you lose and organizing to win the next time. But the Democrats formed a resistance to Trump. That's where there's incredible division in our country. They've also fixed this election. It should be quite obvious. They're also character assassins. There isn't a, a significant Republican who hasn't been slandered, libeled, defamed. And you just interviewed one of them by Democrats. Stop treating them with kid gloves. That, that's what I'm saying in this piece. You've got to fight fire with fire. So how do you fight uh, totalitarians, uh, reactionaries? There are, why are they totalitarians? Well, identity politics wants to make everything political. It's not just that they want to have a dictatorship, which they do. They, they, the Democrats have worked relentlessly to, to develop a one-party system. They're against the electoral college. They want to eliminate, it's in the Constitution, they want to eliminate, actually, the Senate. They want to pack the Supreme Court. They want to have mail-in ballots that are uh, easy uh, to defraud. Um, they don't want to have an election day. They want you to be able to vote for months. So it makes it easy, of course, to fix. They have declared war on our system, is what the Democrats have done. But identity politics 
is all-encompassing. So it's not just that they want to set up a one-party dictatorship, which they do. It should be obvious to everyone by now. But they want to control you right down to the pronouns you use. In Canada, they're already prosecuting people for not using the you know, proper pronouns, say, to address transgendered people, criminalizing it. So it's like every aspect of, of life is, is under their um, strictures. They don't want you to go to church or synagogue during a virus epidemic, but they, it's okay to go to a liquor store or Walmart. These people are very dangerous people. The leadership of the Democrat Party today are dangerous, dangerous people. And it's time for conservatives and patriots to recognize that and to fight it the way it needs to be fought. Don't be so polite. The only Republican I know that's called a Democrat a racist is Trump. And that was a black Democrat, Elijah Cummings. And he was right. Elijah Cummings made himself a millionaire uh, running a district in, uh, in, in Baltimore where, you know, poverty is off the charts, the schools are rotten, and so forth. And he was there for 40 years. And what he did was enrich himself. If, if, if he had been a, uh, a Republican, the Democrats would be calling him a racist. When we come back with David Horowitz, I want to get to his insights on what fighting back against the reactionaries and totalitarians, the identitarians, what that looks like for the uh, average American. More with David Horowitz right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with David Horowitz. Talking about his piece set over at Powerline, powerlineblog.com, called Fighting Words. And before the break, uh, David, you made the case for fighting back and what that looks like. So um, here's a question uh, Shelby Steele's What Killed Michael Brown documentary, that seems to me a good example of fighting back with somebody like Shelby Steele who has profile, intellectual profile, and then also artistic profile to, to put together this documentary. What is it that. Um, ordinary Americans can do in the, uh, you know, in the, the occasion of their day-to-day lives to be part of that fighting back that you're describing? Be For everyday waged. people, you have to stay, don't stray too far outside your comfort zone, but you've got to be a lot tougher than you are now. Okay. Look, racism is racism. Uh, just to... It, if the Democrats are appointing vice presidential candidates on the basis of their race, that's racism. You know, just say it. Mm-hmm. I, I well, just, just in the, in the way you fight these political wars, you, you can't, uh, you know, you can't orchestrate everything you do on the basis of race. You know, every time there's an appointment, tell up the Democrat party is a racist party. You know, if, if they had a Supreme Court appointment, the battle would be, was it going to be black 
Well, it's female, and you know all these things. This is not America. This is not. This is not. You know, the Constitution doesn't use the words white, black, male, or female, because the vision of the founders was that to create a society in which individuals were judged on their merits, not on their gender or their race. Well, the Democrat Party the... is an anti-American yeah. party. Your respond to the uh, assertion that uh, the left, this identitarian left you're describing, ultimately is going to be a snake that eats its own tail. And a good example of this just transpired uh, over the weekend or last week before the holiday, which was Dianne Feinstein being demoted from the ranking member yeah. of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Because the Germans at, have a term for, for, for how we should react. It's called shot Well, I get, I get that Freud part of it. No, no, no. I get I get that part of it. But but the the idea that she was demoted because she wasn't strident enough. This is somebody you, the the dogma because lives loudly within you. Lindsey Graham if for she's, right. A right. Right. So this so is so disgusting. No, I know, but wait, 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 David, wait a second. So somebody as left as Diane Feinstein, who essentially accidentally elevated Amy Coney Barrett. Is there any merit to the argument that it's those examples show how the left is going to sort of inexorably marginalize itself? Yeah, but look, they can do so much damage in the process. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, they're going to go out to try to arm Iran again. Uh, you know, it took 70 years. The Soviet system was bankrupt from the start. It took 70 years to get rid of it. Think of all the lives that were ruined. And the lives that they're going to ruin now, the Democrats, if they if they get enough power. Uh, so I, I I don't think it's a good posture to say they're going to devour themselves and they'll uh, you know we don't have to do anything but watch them fall. I think we're in a very in a good position, even if they steal this election, to fight. Although I'm worried about the Georgia Senate race. They're letting them, you know, they're going to steal that, too. I mean, the Republicans just have to get a war mentality. He is, David. I mean, that's the gist of what I've, I've said in the article. It's time, it's time to go to war, people. Uh, you know, if, if there's a, a Democrat that genuinely reaches out, I, you know, I mean, every now and then there's a Joe Manchin. Um, fine. But but don't treat the you know these people with kid gloves. Don't pretend that Joe Biden is not a corrupt liar and a, and a character assassin. He accused Trump of being a racist. I mean, this is you know four years into a Trump presidency, which has done more for black people than any other president, as he says since Lincoln. That's true. He is, anyway. he is David Horowitz, founder and president of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, editor of Front Page Magazine, the book Blitz, Trump Will Smash the Left and Win, and check out his column again, Fighting Words, which I will uh, tweet out at Dan Proft as well. David Horowitz, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
real know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and President Trump at uh, Thanksgiving press briefing got uh, into a bit of a spirited exchange with a Reuters reporter about his tone with respect to the president. But uh, look, um, uh, the question is going to be con- is going to continue to put to him, be put to him as we get closer to December 14th, the date of the Electoral College meeting to certify the election results such as they are. And President Trump and his legal team have all acknowledged that they understand the clock they're on. And they understand what might come to pass. So you expect these contingencies are being gamed out as they should be. I mean, they have Biden beating Obama on Obama's vote in areas that mattered in terms of the election in swing states. And yet he's losing to Obama all over the place. But he's beating Obama in swing states, which are the states that mattered for purposes of the election. So, no, I can't say that at all. I think it's a it's a possibility. They're trying to look. Between you people, don't answer, don't talk to me that way. You're just a you're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. I like it. Uh, that lightweight in question, Jeff Mason from Reuters, as I said, and President Trump is you know, previously saying it's and said again uh, last Wednesday, difficult to concede, even though he recognizes that this is something that uh, must be contemplated. It's going to be a very hard thing to concede because we know there was massive fraud. So as to whether or not I can get this apparatus moving this quickly, because time isn't on our side. Everything else is on our side. Facts are on our side. This was a massive fraud. Yeah, time is not on our side, but everything else is on our side. Um, That is a a pragmatic understanding of the situation, which is why it was interesting, because on Wednesday I gamed out what Trump is gaming out in his own head and probably with staff and advisors as well, which is if this is where we're at on December 14th, then this, if we're at a different place than that Uh, regarding decisions such as do I address supporters and by extension the nation uh, or do I say nothing? And then subsequent to that about the inauguration and so on and so forth. But uh, just that first decision about parting thoughts in the wake that in the in the event that I have to concede I essentially have given my word I'm going to do what was not afforded to me which is provide for a peaceful transfer of power if that's where we're at because I ran out of time and we couldn't pull together the necessary evidence to support the claims we have a theory the theory has a lot of circumstantial basis but we weren't able to pull it together we weren't able to perhaps or didn't focus the way we should have, arguably, as I've argued, as you heard Richard Epstein earlier in the show argue, NYU law professor, that uh, we're going to have to live to fight another day like Andrew Jackson did in 1828. And that's sort of the subject of VDH's column, Victor Davis Hanson, going through the same machinations. So when I read my, you know, here's what Trump should say remarks, my little riff uh, last week's show, I got some email back saying, you know, I'm not going to listen to the show anymore. Trump should never concede. This was fraud, so on and so forth. I'm not saying he should concede. Gaming out contingencies. That's what any good leader does. That's what any good advisor to a leader would do. You have to prepare. You have to think about these things. These are the realities on the ground. You hear Trump openly contemplating them in Q&A with reporters. I understand that people are disgusted and exasperated by so much of what has transpired, both in this election and, frankly, over the last four years with respect to how this president has been besieged from 
the allied forces of the cultural left. But that doesn't get you out of the decisions that need to be made in the very near term based on how successful you are in pursuing the truth in courts of law, through state legislative hearings, and in any other form that's appropriate. And so VDH is essentially saying the same thing. Victor Davis Hanson, you know, who, he wrote the book, The Case for Trump. So he's not exactly soft on Trump as uh, anybody who listens to this show or listens to VDH, reads VDH, very well knows. He um, writes, as I sort of intimated, it's a bit rich for the media to warn of Trump's dangers to the spirit of smooth presidential transitions when such protocols were deliberately rendered null and void in 2016. But that's the past. What matters now are the interests of the country first and Trump's constituents second. So Trump has a number of pathways. One, keep addressing legitimate reports of voter irregularities. Continue to ask the court to set aside any legal votes that do not conform to state voting laws. Absolutely. Totally agree. Should do that. But listen to what else VDH says. Trump, within days, will have to prove that any such crimes and lapses warped state counts enough to have wrongly elected Joe Biden president. Trump realistically has perhaps a week or so left to either make his case or concede. Then, to maintain the Senate majority for Republicans and to save the very rules and protocols of the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Constitution, Trump needs to barnstorm Georgia. He needs to enthuse the conservative base to reelect the states to incumbent senators there, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. And in addition to what VDH says about saving the rules and protocols of the Senate, SCOTUS, the Constitution, it's also saving in large measure the leisure, the uh, legacy of Trump's presidency and his accomplishments. After that, Trump's Make America Great Again agenda will be codified as his party's own, writes VDH. He has a year or more to decide whether he wishes to play kingmaker among would-be Republican congressional and presidential candidates or run himself for a second term, Grover Cleveland style. Two options not mutually exclusive, but he uh, his other alternative is a bit bleaker. Currently, Trump-affiliated lawyers claim they can prove their bombshell allegations of historic voting fraud by leftists and foreign interests. They further claim Trump was robbed not of a close election, but of a veritable landslide, constituting the greatest scandal in U.S. history. But... So far, none of these advocates have produced the requisite whistleblowers, computer data, or forensic evidence to prove their astounding charges. If they don't produce it in a few days, and if Trump pivots to put his fate in their hands, then the pilloried Republicans may well lose the Senate races in Georgia. And with that historic setback, he would endanger his legacy, his influence, and perhaps a crack at a second presidential term. He risked, uh, risks potentially being reduced to the status of sore presidential losers such as Al Gore and Hillary Clinton. Those are real strategic decisions he needs to make on the merits and on what is best for the country, his constituents, and himself. That's a conversation we're having. It may be uh, uncomfortable to have. It may be annoying given uh, everything that uh, has happened and that we believe to have happened. Given theories, we have a great deal of confidence in, but unfortunately not the evidence that's required for a court of law. But these are the things that not need to be contemplated. And when you have deep thinkers, great historians like Victor Davis Hanson contemplating them and suggesting essentially that Trump supporters do the same, then we're, we need to have a conversation about it, as difficult as it is. These are difficult times in the country that are going to require some difficult conversations, including this one. And you fight it out every day until your options are further limited. And then you have to call certain questions maybe you didn't want to call. That's all I was doing on Wednesday. That's what I'm doing here. And so is Victor Davis Hanson. This is Dan Brown.
guest on the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show and sort of continuing on this theme of uh, quality education as a way out of difficult circumstances growing up, a way out of poverty specifically. I watched Hillbilly Elegy over the weekend. This is the uh, sort of surprise bestseller, uh, autobiographical in nature, Hillbilly Elegy, written by J.D. Vance, who is from Middletown, Ohio, lived in Appalachia uh, from a poor family, family that had uh, gone through cycles of poverty. This is, you know, white rural as opposed to the more familiar story of black or Latino and urban. Compelling nonetheless, he gets out of that circumstance, does J.D. Vance, and goes on to earn a law degree from Harvard Law, meet his future wife there, and and, uh, she's portrayed in the film as well. The book is really good, and it's interesting. It tackles these issues surrounding poverty in places like Appalachia, you know, in a, in a layered way, and it is not uh, pandering. The book is not. Uh, so I was interested to see how this would uh, turn out when translated on film. I mean, you've got a lot of stars in this. It was really interesting that uh, Ron Howard picked up the film to do it. Uh, Amy Adams stars as J.D. Vance's wife, great actress. Glenn Close as his grandma, his uh, mamow, I think is the pronunciation. You know, and they they give great performances. But I, I got to say, and I don't want to be cliche here, the book better than the movie, but uh, by leaps and bounds. Uh, there's a lot of criticism online about the movie being poverty porn and so on. It's, it's tone deaf. It's offensive. It's stereotypical. I mean, it's J.D. Vance's autobiography. So, I mean, uh, I'm sorry. There is some truth in stereotypes. And this is the world that J.D. Vance experienced growing up. If you find his descriptions of some of the family members of his stereotypical well uh, if you're offended by that sorry but that's his life so it's of course it's just ridiculous it's people that have to treat everything as magical and uh, anybody who's downtrodden as necessarily heroic rather than in many cases somebody who's made a series of terrible decisions and can't seem to make proper decisions at least if they want to get out of cycles of addiction and dependency and so forth. But the movie is disappointing for me, I got to say. It just comes across a little flat for me, a little lifetime-ish, you know, a little bit like it's a lifetime movie, even with the strong performances of wonderful actresses like Amy Adams and Glenn Close. It just didn't translate well, I guess, is the best way. Whoever and I didn't look, whoever adapted the book into a screenplay for the purposes of the Netflix offering, I just don't think captured enough of the texture so that it did become a little bit unidimensional, whereas the book itself really captures the many dimensions of all of the people that J.D. Vance wrote about, his family. It's definitely worth reading the book. I definitely encourage you to read the book. You know, the movie is uh, something you can... See or not see, I don't think it would materially change the takeaway from J.D. Vance's offering if uh, you just read the book and and uh, didn't see the movie. I think uh, the book is what prompts some reflection. The movie may be a little bit less so. This is the- 